want to read to you a quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Screwtape Letters. It says this, We have trained them to think of the future as a promised land which favored heroes attain, not as something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour, whatever he does, whoever he is. So in other words, the future is coming, and there's no way to stop it. You can't stop it. And that's the thing about time. It is relentless. In the words of Pastor Seski from last week, you can't stop it. And I think he was sort of quoting MC Hammer, right? The relentless nature of time, though, is not what we're going to talk about, but rather it provides for us an illustration for the relentless nature of the kingdom, that regardless of the obstacles, the kingdom advances, and those who stand in the way are enemies of God. That's just the truth. This morning, we're looking at a pivotal moment in the life of the early church where both Paul and Barnabas are sent forth by the Holy Spirit of God to embark on their first missionary journey. It's, it's kind of coincidental or providential that this morning in the church calendar is Pentecost Sunday, where we remember the day when the Holy Spirit was gifted to the church to guide us, to lead us, to comfort us. And this missionary journey encompasses a mission that begins in the quietness and disciplines of prayer, fasting, and worship. It's a mission that will engage and render helpless the cosmic powers and authorities who are trying to thwart the plans and purposes of Almighty God. It's a mission that advances through the providential and more often than not unpredictable hand of God. How many of us have experienced where things happen and we're like, I didn't know it was going to go like that. And you kind of think to yourself, that sounds like God. I had a friend of mine that used to say, odd or God? And I always thought that was clever. The purposes of God will not and cannot be held captive by the powers and authorities, whether it be the advancement of the gospel or the strengthening of the saints, our Father in heaven, through the person and work of Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, will relentlessly bring to completion the good work that he began. And we get to participate in it. We get to participate in it. What a glorious thing. So as Pete read from chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, that's where we are this morning. And you have that passage on the left side of your bulletin. And we're going to be following a simple outline that's on the right side of your bulletin. So set apart by the Spirit. Verses 1 through 3, let me read them again. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So a couple of things that I noticed as I was studying this week. Now, there's so much in just these three verses. You probably have an entire sermon dedicated to it. But we're just going to look at a couple things. The nature of the church leadership is something that just kind of sparked in my brain a little bit. There is significant diversity here, ethnically speaking, as we see Lucius is from North Africa, and Simeon is described as being one with a much darker complexion. He's a black man. 
in the midst of what's going on here. Menaean grew up with and was probably close friends with Herod, the same guy who beheaded John the Baptist and played a role in the crucifixion of Jesus. And Saul, who's the reason why the Christians are in Antioch to begin with, because he's the one who was leading the persecution, he's now evangelizing that city and discipling them. So point being, the good news of the kingdom, while opposed by Herod and even Saul, continues to grow and gain ground and establishes itself. And this is what's really important, where we really all need to wrap our minds around this. It establishes itself as a table open to all who might come sit and eat, regardless of ethnic, racial, and socioeconomic distinctions. What a beautiful thing the family of God is. What a beautiful thing that these barriers that have been built up around us by the world and by the systems of the world and by those powers and authorities who want nothing more than to divide are all crushed to pieces. And now we can all come together as brothers and sisters. That's right, brothers and sisters, because we are the family of God. The family of God. And, and back in Ephesians that we studied uh, about a year and a half ago, that dividing wall of hostility is obliterated. Oh, what a beautiful and glorious thing. What the gospel does, right? It saves us. It brings us into fellowship with God. And it, and it also brings us into fellowship with one another. It breaks down barriers. Breaks down barriers. That is, that is good news. And often what we do with the gospel is we simply apply it to ourselves individually. But, but so important, and I, and, and, and I think you're kind of catching this for me over the last two years, is that the gospel also brings people together. It's, it's a table fellowship sort of thing. So it's about our relationship with God, but it's also about our relationship with one another. A couple of other observations. Notice what this multi-ethnic leadership team, these prophets and teachers are doing. They're worshiping the Lord and fasting. And, and, and it also says a little later they were praying. And it is while they are doing these things, in the midst of this activity, this seemingly sort of like uneventful activity of worshiping and fasting, right? These aren't productive things in the, in the worldly sense, right? Like they're not swinging a hammer and building a house. They're not making money. They're not doing any sort of thing that would physically advance sort of anything. But yet it is in those moments, while they're praying, while they're worshiping, while they're fasting, that the Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit speaks. We had a conversation at our elder meeting this past week about the importance of us as, as church leaders to be praying and fasting and worshiping, not only on Sunday mornings, but together as an elder team. See, we got so caught up with the business of the church over the last number of months, which makes sense, right? Because things have been chaotic in the world, and we had to kind of get things organized and sorted out as we were coming back into the building and restrictions are being lifted, that we started forgetting the main thing, which is to pray, worship, fast, be with God, be with one another. And so we called ourselves back to that. And all of us as a body need to be calling ourselves back to that. And those are the very things that we are so, so less inclined to do, right? Because we're, we're Westerners, we're American, we want to do, 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 do. 
But God is saying, whoa, 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 before you do, you need to be with me. You need to sit with me. And it's in the midst of that that I'm going to speak. It's in the midst of that silence, that time of prayer with the Lord that I'm going to meet with you. And oh, I'm going to strengthen you to do the work of the ministry. I'm going to give you what you need in those moments because the reality is we can't give what we don't have, right? We can't give Jesus if we don't possess him. We can't give, give news of, of hope if we don't possess hope ourselves, of faith if we don't possess faith ourselves. And it's there where our faith is strengthened. It's there where the Holy Spirit meets us. So a little sidebar, some theology. Notice that what we read is that the Holy Spirit said. See, the Holy Spirit speaks. This means that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person of the Trinity. A little bit of theology. One theologian, Herman Bovink, he says it like this. Let me get a little heady for a second. All kinds of personal capacities and activities are attributed to the Holy Spirit. Searching, judging, hearing, speaking, willing, teaching, interceding, witnessing, and so on. He is coordinated with the Father and the Son. None of this is possible unless the Spirit, too, is truly God. The Holy Spirit, a distinct person in the Godhead, is God. It's important that we remember that. And what does the Spirit say? He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Set apart for me. Take these two people and set them apart for the work which I have called them. And what kind of work is that? Well, if we've been paying attention over the course of the last number of months and over the course of, of much of our time as we've traveled through the scriptures together as a church, the work that they have been set apart for is the bringing of the good news of the kingdom to the nation so that in Christ, the true Israel, all the nations of the earth might be blessed. All the nations of the earth might be blessed. That's the work which Paul and Barnabas have been set apart for. And there's actually this echo of Isaiah where it talks about the servant of the Lord being set apart. That same language in the Greek Old Testament is being talked about. Set apart. Why? So that the gospel might go forth to the nations, that, that Israel would be a blessing. And when Israel fumbled the ball, Jesus, the true Israel, picked it up. And we, being brought into union with Christ, now have been given the same task to witness before the nations. Again, those dividing walls of hostility are being broken down so that the table is set for all who might come. For all who might come. And see, what, what we see here is that Herod tried to stop it, but God called one of his best friends to bear witness to it. Saul tried to stop it, but God stepped in, blinding him into submission. And even Peter had questions about this worldwide mission until God stepped in. And so what's the point? The purposes of God, both universally and personally, will not and cannot be stopped, as he will see them all through to completion. And notice again that God works in the midst of them praying and fasting. Come the fall, we're going to be looking most likely at the Lord's prayer together as a church. 
And then in the spring of next year, we're going to be actually going through the spiritual disciplines as a church. Because what I believe is that we need to understand how we are to be plugged into this source called God. So that we might be filled with the things that we need to give to the world around us. To give to one another. Are we spending that time with Jesus One theologian, William James Jennings, says this, wherever women and men give themselves to the disciplines that attune the body to its hunger for the spirit, they will find themselves receptive to the voice of God and they will hear the the spirit speaking and offering guidance. Are we allowing ourselves to be prepped to hear God speak to us through his word, through one another? Are we allowing ourselves And it's through those disciplines, the the studying of the scriptures, fasting, praying, meditating, contemplation, all these things. This is how God gets into us and gets into our lives so that we might be a blessing to the world around us. That we might have the strength and the unction to proclaim the good news to the world around us. So that as we're living our lives, people ask us, hey, what's that about you? And we are ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And, And so, yeah, God is doing something here as he's preparing this crew and he's sending out Paul and Barnabas because nothing can stop the mission of God. You cannot stop it. It is relentless and it's beautiful and it begins here with us. And so the text continues, verses 4 through 8, and it says this. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, or Salami, because I'm Italian, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. That's John Mark, the same guy who traditionally has written the Gospel of Mark. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So a couple things, right? They start and they proclaim God in the synagogues, which is Paul's pattern, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. Like I said before, John Mark is there to help them out. Tradition holds that this is the same person who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And it says that they came upon or happened upon like it was by accident. Right? That's what that word means. It actually is taken from the Greek word that sounds similar to the word eureka. Like, eureka, I found it. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't expect to see that. And so they happen upon a certain magician and a proconsul, which is the highest ranking official in, Roman, in a Roman senatorial province. And, and let's look at the differences between these two people. The proconsul wants to hear the word of God. He has a desire. He wants to hear the word of God. He calls Barnabas and and Saul, who will later be called Paul, to to him because he wants to hear from them. He wants to understand what this whole thing is about. Teach me, Paul and Barnabas. That'd be a fun Bible study to be a part of. Teach me. But then there's this other guy, the magician, who opposed them, seeking to turn or twist 
the proconsul away from the faith. And, and what is a magician but none other than a symbol of the powers and authorities, these demonic sort of entities? I, I was recalling Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Who or what are we dealing with? Well, Elimas, as I said, represents the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these are the forces seeking to draw us away from Jesus, disguising themselves as people like Elimas, but, but we're too sophisticated to fall for that, right? That's not, we're not going to sit here and be like, like we don't go to a, to a magic show and think like, oh, I'm going to worship Satan. We don't do that. We're not deceived by those things because we're modern Westerners. We are, we are, we are brilliant, right? We've come so far technologically. Oh, but, but no, no, that's not really true, right? What about those other things that, that the powers and authorities disguise themselves as? Maybe it's the 24-hour news cycle that pits one another against each other. The distraction of scrolling through our phones on social media. The inundation of sexual temptation that we are barraged with on a daily basis. Racial and socioeconomic tensions that keep us apart. Busyness and the complexity of our lives that keep us from setting aside time to be with Jesus. Make no mistake about it. This is not flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle and the battle is for our souls. But if this salvation is truly a work of God, then in the same way the kingdom advances, regardless of the opposition, so too will our walks with Jesus, provided we submit ourselves to him, provided we, we meet with him, provided we take the time to, to engage in that spiritual warfare, to arm ourselves with the armor of God, and not just an individual thing, but us as a church, that we would push against these things that divide. Because that's what the enemy wants to do. And we're going to see how that enemy is described in just a few minutes. But that's what is happening here. Yes, in this text, it's, it's, it's Elimas who is a picture of the enemy. Oh, but the enemy shows up everywhere, doesn't he? And, and I want us to be careful, too, to not just blame everything on the enemy because we also have been so influenced by the structures and systems of this world that we become our own worst enemy at times. And our flesh, remember that, that accent of sinner that we all speak in still? It starts to rear its ugly head and it starts to kind of take you down this path or take you down that path and it distracts us and it, and it puts ideas into our heads and, and, and maybe a certain song pops on and you remember something from when you were a kid or a certain smell triggers. And what we need to be doing is, is attacking those things, is, is, is entering into them head on and saying, no, I follow Jesus. I follow Jesus. And we're going to see in just a few minutes how Paul engages in this battle. We're going to see in just a few minutes. And, and I wanted to encourage us because while there are all these things distracting us and while there are all these things seeking to pit us against one another and to pit us against God, he will remain faithful. It says in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, knowing all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. And we need to arm ourselves with that truth. And the beautiful thing, as we remember Pentecost Sunday, is that we've been filled and indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we can engage in this battle. And we've been given the church, one another. Oh, Redeemer Fellowship, you can't do this on your own. Leah mentioned that, right, as she was up here talking about the women's worship night, how, how much she was longing for that fellowship, how much she wanted to be in communion with her sisters in Christ because we draw strength from one another. Pete and I were just talking before. He's reading a book where it talks about how, how we are actually divided from one another. And, and, and in that division, we seem to think we're okay, right? Because we have all the stuff that we know. I'm just taking all the stuff you told me before. And because we, we have everything, right? We have our Netflix. We have our, I'm just going to quote you just specifically, right? We have Netflix. We have our fridges filled with all the things we need. We don't need each other. But we do. But we do. We desperately need each other. We desperately need each other. God wants us with one another. We find strength with one another. Because remember, we're the body of Christ. There's something cosmic taking place when the body gathers. Where two or more are gathered, he's there. If that's not cosmic, then I don't know what is. Because I don't know if you remember, but Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. But he's here. So that means heaven and earth are coming together when the people of God gather. Heaven and earth are coming together when we sit with our Bibles open on our laps and we're praying. Heaven and earth come together on Sunday mornings when we preach and worship and proclaim the good news of Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. That's good news. That's the best news all the things that creation was longing for, right? To be in the presence of God. Israel longed for the presence of God. And we have the presence of God indwelling us, both personally and corporately as the body of Christ. We need to be amazed at those things. We need to stand in wonder at those things. And the only way we will stand in wonder at those things is if we cultivate them, is if we spend that time with one another, individually, praying, fasting, silent before God, worshiping him, serving him. What a beautiful thing that we have been called to. And so the text continues, verses 9 through 12. But Saul, and whenever there's that word but, you always know there's a, there's a sharp contrast happening. But Saul, who was called Paul, the name change right there, right? Because he is, the gent he is the apostle to the Gentiles, and that shift gives him his Greek name. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. 
and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So let's see what happens here. Paul looked intently at him. Who did he look at? Elimas, the magician, Bar-Jesus. He stared at him. He fixed his gaze upon him. He got in his face and stared him down the way you might stare down another man who takes a second look at your wife. He's not playing around. He gets right up in his grill. And then what happens? He calls him, you son of the devil. Let's remember what bar Jesus means. It means son of Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. You have nothing to do with Jesus. You are a son of the devil. You are a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, one who takes what's straight, who takes what's good and twists it and turns it and distracts people from Yahweh. You say you're Jewish, but you're a false prophet. You don't represent anything remotely even close to the Judaism that Paul knows. Because the Judaism that Paul knows leads to the Savior. And this man is leading people away from Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine someone leading people away from our Lord. See, we don't have kind things to say about those people. And certainly Paul did not have kind things to say to this man who was leading people away from Jesus. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul blinds this man and, and speaks a curse against him. The, land, the hand of the Lord is upon you. I was, I was immediately reminded of a few chapters before in Acts chapter 11, verse 21. At the beginning of the mission in Antioch, Luke describes the hand of the Lord being with them. And a great number who believe turn to the Lord. See, the hand of the Lord is a, is a two-edged sword. It brings life adding to the number of God's people. And it also shuts down those who oppose the growth of the church. See, see God is a God who, who judges evil, especially when that evil stands in the way of people hearing about him. See, he doesn't play with that, which means that we ought to not play with that. We can't pretend that, that, that evil is okay. We can't, we can't dabble in evil. Because that is the very thing that is drawing us away from God. So in the same way Paul stares it down in the face and calls it for what it is, so we too have to speak truth over the sin that is creeping into our lives. We need to recognize it for what it is. And what it is, it is devilish because it is drawing us away from God. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. We need to combat that. And how do we combat that? Well, since this war is not with flesh and blood and it's a spiritual war, we combat it on our knees. We combat it with one another in fellowship with the church. We combat it as we go to the Lord, as we pray, as we study the scriptures, as we encourage one another, as we challenge one another, as we allow ourselves to be challenged. Are you okay with someone speaking into your life? 
Are you okay with someone calling out sin in your life? We have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with that. Because if we're not, then we're going to keep numbing ourselves to it. See, the Holy Spirit will eventually grow dull in our minds. We won't, we won't necessarily, we'll quench the Spirit, right? You've heard that before. And I think sometimes we think, well, if we don't clap our hands in worship, we're quenching the Spirit. Nah, that's not what it means. Don't get me wrong, I love clapping my hands during worship. I like to raise my hands sometimes. But quenching the Spirit is not me sitting there worshiping like this. No, quenching the Spirit is when I continually refuse to repent of the sins that, that He is bringing to my mind. Because then eventually we get a taste for it. It becomes easier. Kind of like a callus. I'm a guitar player. And, and at first when you learn how to play guitar, you, you can't really put your fingers down. Right? It's hard. Because all those nerve endings are alive and well. And they're, they're sending all sorts of, 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 of sorts of signals to my brain letting me know, no, that hurts. Don't play the F chord. The F chord's hard if you've played guitar. It's not hard anymore, but it's hard at first. But as you continue to play your fingers start to grow numb. Now, this is a weird sort of analogy because I'm arguing for the life of the Spirit in us to the deadening of our nerves. But the point is, is that, is that as it grows numb, we don't feel it anymore. And so it actually does work, right? Because as we continue to quench the Spirit, it grows dull. It grows almost dead inside of us, and we don't hear His voice anymore. We don't get it anymore. And we just become okay with sin. But God is calling us away from that. He's calling us away from that. He wants us to cultivate that relationship with him. So the text goes on a little bit here, right? Where am I at here? I went off on a little bit of a tangent, but I feel okay about it. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. I think I just like saying you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? If you remember um, Pete read this morning from, I believe, Malachi, right? Micah. They both start with M. And he was talking about how the straight paths of the Lord, that is an Old Testament theme that is being brought up here. And even John the Baptist brought this stuff up back in the Gospels. And the straight path of the Lord is the path that we have been called to follow. And what is this man doing? He's twisting it. That's what that word means. He's twisting it. He's making it crooked. He's messing with it. And so we do need to speak truth to these things in our lives. And we need to continue on that path. And behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and able to see the sun for a time. Look at what happens to this man. And there's some irony here, right? Because Paul was blinded, if you remember. And now he's doing the blinding. Only this blinding is not the same as Paul's blinding because Paul's blinding actually gave him eyes to see whereas this man is being judged. The beauty is, though, is there's grace in here. I don't know if you caught it. It says, and now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Right? This isn't a permanent blindness, it appears. And so there's grace in the midst of this judgment, which reminds me of Genesis, right? The, the judgment that falls upon Adam and Eve. In the midst of that judgment, there's a spark of grace in there. And so Elimas is not completely, you know, neglected. He, he has a chance to come back to the faith. He has a chance to repent. And that's the beauty of our God. Remember what I said, that the gospel is relentless. The kingdom is relentless. He is going to continue to pursue us. 
As we name the name of Jesus, he's going to pursue us. He's going to continue convicting you of sin. He's going to make you sick to your stomach. And don't allow that sickness to turn to numbness. He will pursue us, but there is a point where, where it seems, as you read the scriptures, where people turn their back on the Lord. And we have to fight tooth and nail. And then the text continues, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. There's a, there's a sense of humility in the midst of this. A man who was, who was basically hanging out with the proconsul, this high and lofty position, now loses everything, and he's being led by the hand. He ha- he's actually seeking people to lead him by the hand, the humility that he experiences. And then, I love this, then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of our Lord, of the Lord. You can even, you can even read that he was astonished about the, the, at the teachings about our Lord. And so the question that I pose to you this morning, are we still amazed? Are we still in awe of our Savior? Are we still astonished as you read through the Gospels? Does it still get you excited that this man, Jesus, lived died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Does that amaze you? Or has it become something that's, that's almost, almost trite in your mind? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Jesus rose again. Oh, we have to be amazed. My prayer is that we would never lose that wonder. My prayer is that we would never cease from being amazed at the glory of our God, at the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ that he saved us from our sins. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Are we amazed still? We have to fight for that wonder still. There was a question on Twitter the other day. What's, what's one movie if you had the chance to see it again for the first time, right? Because why is that a question? Why is that something like, have you ever thought, like I always think in my head, man, man, I, I wish I can rewatch you know, Star Wars, as, as, a, as a 38-year-old man would have ever having seen it before, right? How amazing would that be? Or maybe it wouldn't be that good because maybe it's all nostalgia. I don't know. But my point is, is what movie would you want to just see again with fresh eyes? And, and, and here's what I'm getting at, right? We need to continually, every morning, look at Jesus with fresh eyes and be amazed the way you looked at your spouse on the morning of your wedding as she entered in through the room and walked down the aisle or as you were looking at your husband-to-be as you walked toward him, that amazement that filled you. Do we look at Jesus that way still? Or is it just like, oh yeah, no, I know this movie. Yeah, I know that line. And you know where the amazement comes? You know how we cultivate that? We cultivate that by digging into this. Because I guarantee you, there are things in this book that you've never even realized. And there are treasures that if you continue mining deeper and deeper, that you will be sparked with joy and amazement. And so it's from, it's from reading the scriptures. It's from spending that time in prayer with him, with one another, cultivating that spiritual life. Oh, that's so important for us, Redeemer. That's so important for us as followers of Jesus to cultivate those things.
That's where we're going to see him more clearly, to serve him. Because actually the word in the beginning here where it says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, etc. It says, while they were worshiping, another way to, to translate that word worship is serve. It's, it's a priestly duty as they were worshiping or serving the Lord. So as we serve God, we meet God. As we pray to God, we meet God. As we neglect our bodies of physical sustenance, we meet him because he fills us with what we need spiritually. And as we remove the distractions from our life and cultivate this walk with Jesus, we will continue to grow in awe. Oh, my prayer is that we would all have that faith of a child. And look at your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and your nephews, and see that sparkle in their eye. Many of us have lost that sparkle because we're so distracted. God is calling us to be with him. God is calling us to spend that time with him, to look sin in the eye and call it for what it is and run from it. Oh, we have such a beautiful Savior, Redeemer. I can't even tell you we have such a beautiful Savior. And he loves us dearly. And he is going to pursue us with everything that is in him. Oh, what a glorious thing. The kingdom is relentless. And God, in his pursuit of us, is relentless. He loves us so. He loves us so. His faithfulness is relentless. And though many might try, he cannot be opposed. Not even death was able to to keep him. That's good news. That's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, oh, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the wonder that is the good news of the gospel, Lord God, that the kingdom is in our midst, Father, that you rule over all of creation, king of the universe, Father. Oh, thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your son, Jesus, Lord, who died on a cross, who lived a life, Father, I pray that we would look at the life of Jesus, Lord, that we would be moved by the life of Jesus. Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit, Lord, who speaks, who speaks through his word and through your people, Lord God, and that still small voice that is in with all, within all of us, Father. I thank you that you are three in one, Father, and that all three are active in our lives, both individually and corporately as a church. Father, I pray as we go to the table this morning, that we would recognize the very thing that we are celebrating, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus brings us life, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be in awe of that, Lord God, that our eyes would be wide the way a child's eyes are wide, Father. Oh, Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.